Matthew chapter 21, we read this. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, and he's speaking of the prophet Zechariah here in 9.9, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt full of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from olive trees and spread them, uh, branches from trees, I'm sorry, and spread them on the road. That's where we get Palm Sunday from is those branches. Then the multitude who went out before and those who cried out, followed cried out, saying, Hoshana, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. I like this word. The word is sayo in the Greek. Sayo means rocked. Jesus came and rocked the house. So when he showed up in Jerusalem, the whole city was rocked or moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Will you join with me in prayer, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to worship you, to love you, to call out to you. I thank you for what you're going to do here in this time. And I thank you, Lord, that you, would, that you are here and you are desirous to speak to each of us. And even as we, we sang, speak to our hearts. Give us a desire right now to hear you. And Lord, more than just to gain information, but rather to absorb and to receive from you transformation, that we would look and be more like you. So Lord, please have your way now. We pray. Redeem every second. May we have so much fun in your word. May your word burst open and come alive and captivate us now, we pray. And every second, if there be any who have yet to say yes to you, let today be the day of their salvation as we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, I'm going to teach you a song. Now, I don't normally do this at a time like this, but it's appropriate. Now, I don't know if we have those lyrics or not, but it's a simple song, except you're going to be speaking Hebrew. So, I'm assuming all of you are ready for that, right? So, repeat after me if you would, please. Baruch. Like, like Baruch Obama. Baruch means blessed. Baruch. Oh, there we go. Hava. Vashem. Shem means name. Adonai. You probably got the, the next word, right? Hallelujah. All right. So, simple song. Baruch Hawah Hashem Andunai Hallelujah. Try that with me. Baruch the other part goes Baruch 
song. No, we can't sing a song like this sitting down, and we can't sing a song like this mellow. So we're going to have to step out of our British Western cultures for a moment. Stand with me. I'm standing. Stand with me. And it isn't about sounding good. It's about sounding joyful. Because God talks about how he loves a joyful noise. Now, don't just make noise to make noise. But try it with me and try to do something weird. Just try to have fun. And then the worst part is you're probably thinking, I don't even know what, he's, what we're saying. It's like, it's, I will tithe all. No, no, that's not it. What, he, what he's saying is, Baruch blessed, Chava, the one, Vashem, the name, Adonai, the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the very thing that the people are crying out here in our text. So try to do with this. Try to make some noise. Try to rock the house. Try to sayo. Rock the house. I'm going to try. You try with me. Ready? Barum Hava Vashem Adonai Alleluia That's it. Nice. Barum Hava Vashem you'll even know how to say it in Hebrew. You might actually, I don't know, something about burgers and brooks and Obamas. Listen, here's where we start this. And again, I want to start by saying, don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. You want to search the scriptures. But there's so much in this and so many of us are familiar with this text. But we're not really 
familiar with more than, well, we kind of seen it in a cartoon somewhere and Jesus riding a donkey and people are waving their palm branches and, and we should probably do the same maybe because after all, if something happened in Scripture, shouldn't we do it? And, and I really want to kind of put us a little bit more into the situation. So I want to sort of develop the geography for a moment and then we'll develop the context and then we'll put ourselves back into the situation. So this is where we need to start. We need to start with a little understanding of the geography. So let's just take for a moment and assume that from this screen and over here, that this is actually Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill. This is why no matter when in Scripture you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. It didn't matter whether you were north, south, east, or west, and you're probably familiar with the fact that traditionally, I don't normally stand up here, but because I'm in Jerusalem, I have to get up a little bit. Uh, Traditionally, you're probably aware that maps didn't have the north as the top of the map. They actually had the east as the top of the map. That's how we get the term getting oriented from, because the idea that that was where the Orient was. Now, consider the fact that no matter where you came from, you went up to Jerusalem. There are valleys on, on both sides of the east and the west. So if this is Jerusalem for the moment, and let's just say if that were the case, this is north. Are you following me? So let's just see how brilliant you are and how many of you are just natural cartographers. Okay, if this is Jerusalem and that is north, are you east or west? East. Who said east? Yes. Nice. Well done. Okay. Yeah, that's true. You guys are east. Now, the east and where you are, don't look at the man behind there. Okay. Uh, where you are then is the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives isn't one little mountain. Mount of Olives is actually relatively 10 to 20 miles of a range, a lot like a finger running across the eastern end then of Jerusalem. In between you is what's called the Kidron Valley. Kidron is the Hebrew word for dark, and that is because it was the sewer system. When the Lamb of God that John calls Jesus, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, walks through that to his execution, or ultimately to his trial and execution, he walks through the blood of the lambs that are being slaughtered to testify of him, strangely enough. Now, consider this. This is, this is Jerusalem, this is the Valley Kidron, and this is the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives are two distinct places that are given much attention, at least in regards to this story. One is the area of Bethphage, as we see in our text, and that is on the northern side of, of the two cities. So let me ask you, of the two of you, if we were to split it down the center, which of you would be Bethphage, here or here? Well done, Bruno. Yes, this is Bethphage. Beth, Bethphage, by the way, means house of figs. Now, on the other side of it, what we read, by the way, in our other two texts, our counter texts, that's actually Mark then 11 and Luke as well, Luke 19, is that we read that the other town that Jesus came to, or because he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany is a place that means the house of dates. And this is why originally I was going to try to throw figs your way and dates your way, but then someone would say, well, the pastor offered me a date, so I didn't want to do that. Not even realizing my wife would sit over there, I could just throw it to her. Now consider this. This is what it says in Mark 11:11 11, 11, and Luke 19:13 that Jesus came to the area of Bethphage and to Bethany. Are you with me so far? So we're getting a little bit of the understanding. On the ridge of this Mount of Olives, almost due east of the entrance into the city, is the area of Bethphage. And this is one of the most important towns outside of what you would think of the city limits. And the reason is it's actually considered part of Jerusalem to the Sanhedrin. 
Do you know that the Sanhedrin, or the ruling party, the 70 is what the term means. They were, today we have the Knesset there, but then we had the ruling party called this, the 70, the Sanhedrin. That they would meet in two different offices. The primary place where they convened was actually in Jerusalem, just beside or before the altar of sacrifice. And they did almost all of their judicial meetings there, except when it came to something that involved borders or limits. The moment it involved borders or limits, they did it in the other city seat, which was actually here in Bethphage. And the reason was, is that because this was due east, then what they considered is this was, in essence, the city gates to Jerusalem. And that was so important because city gates, if you're familiar with city gates, for instance, in Zechariah 8, city gates are the place where all of the business takes place in regards to the borders. It's a place where the father would bequeath his son the land or, his, or the title to an area. It was also the area where you know from the book of Ruth where, the, where marriage transactions take place. It's the place where, in, and we read in Proverbs 31, for instance, that the man is known at the gates. He's respected at the gates. What that means is he's a decent, upright, ethical businessman because that's where it takes place. And it's on the northern side of the gate where that normally takes place. So there was a seat here for the Sanhedrin. It was the place where the limits. It was so important to the Sanhedrin that when things like the Passover started, they sent up, the easiest way to say it is they sent up smoke signals from Bethphage. And they sent them up. To, to signify to all of the surrounding community that this was the beginning of a feast. So there was the, the fire would be started there, then that let everyone else know, because it was up on the top of the hill, that this was where something was to start, because after all, that's where the limits were set. Does that sort of make sense? So that's Bethany, the house of figs. And it's important, by the way, it's actually the house of unripe figs, and we'll see why that plays into things in the next couple of days of Jesus' ministry as we follow on. Now, house of figs, Beth Fig, are you guys with me so far? So let me ask you, what city are you? Wow. They, come on, ripen up now. What city are you? Bethphage. And what does it mean? The house of figs or unripe figs. Are you with me? Now, again, on the ridge, which means the moment you get in there, and it is a walled city, the moment you get in there, you have a full view of the city. Moving before that on the crest, all you would see is the seven-story high temple. Are you with me so far? Let's go over to you for a moment. Bethany. Hi, Bethany. Bethany, hi. hi there. What a date. That was, my, that, was, that was to my wife. All right. Uh, this is the place called the House of Dates. Now, it's important to note, by the way, that dates were considered medicinal. And as dates were considered medicinal, you were actually not on the crest of the hill. You were actually on the other side of it. And according to the Qumran scrolls, some of you are familiar with the fact they found these Dead Sea scrolls in Qumran. According to them, and by the way, three other people that I can at least find, historians, would tell you that there were three cities dedicated to the poor and ill, like almshouses, if you will. And they had to be within a two days journey to the city, but they couldn't be within one. And that was exactly where Bethany sat. Bethany actually was tucked behind the crest so that the ill could come and be close to the temple, but actually not infected. Which is interesting because we do know that certain people live there. And what we, the people we know according to scripture, one is it is the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus, if we actually take this story from Luke, it sounds like he was in a really bad way if that's the same guy. The only parable, by the way, that Jesus uses is a personal name. But it is also the place where Jesus gets anointed at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. And that is in Bethany. 
We do read according to Scripture, and this is going to be really important, that Jesus never spent the night in Jerusalem. He would always spend the night in Bethany. But after all, in Jerusalem, they're all trying to kill you. You're Jason Bourne. But out here, you could spend the night with your best friend Lazarus, who you raised from the dead, if you, you know. And it's like, well, where would you want to go and have a slumber party? So can, you can see why that would be kind of important. And as a matter of fact, that's what we're going to see throughout the text. It is also important to note it is from Bethany that Jesus ascends. I think that's kind of cool to think that, I mean, you could have, I mean, Lazarus could have watched Jesus ascend from his house. Well, that's a weird thought when you could tell how close they were. So I'm putting things a little bit into context geographically. So we have these towns. What's the name of your town? And what does it mean? House of Figs. What's the name of your town? Bethany. Thanks, Bethany. And what does it mean? House of Dates. Beautiful. Now, where are you at on the hill? At the top. Excellent. You're at the top of the crest. Where are you at? Kind of tucked behind it. South. North. Are you with me so far? Okay. This is where we start this situation. Jesus has entered in. Now, he has entered in. He has taken the 85-mile trip from Capernaum, from the area of Galilee. Actually, it's been much farther north, but initially. But then he's made his way down. Luke 9.52, roughly two, roughly through the middle of 19, 10 chapters in essence given to that trip down. Luke really wants to focus on that. Jesus has now made his way in. The last thing we saw in Matthew was that Jesus actually healed two men who were blind in Jericho, if you remember. But what we'll read from Jericho, according to Luke's account, is that he'll actually, in between there and here, is he'll actually meet up with a wee little tax collector, actually a tax the, the overseer of the tax collectors. His name, of course, is Zacchaeus. And he actually goes to his house for dinner. So he has done all of that now and he's made his way to this crest. Now, if you know that much is where we start this, it tells us this information from the beginning of it. Also, it gives us, of course, the Mount of Olives. It's important to note Mount of Olives are mentioned only twice in Scripture in the Old Testament. The first time, by the way, is in Second Samuel where David, the king, is fleeing his son Absalom. And he's fleeing his son because his son is, in essence, performed a coup. That's 2 Samuel 15, roughly 30 is where you'll see him departing. The other time for what it's interesting is in Zechariah 14. And Zechariah will actually speak about the Lord coming back, splitting the Mount of Olives from the north and south. And I think that's an interesting thought, that it won't be split east to west, but it'll be split as if we're, and then from there will be living water that will come out that will purify everything in its path. Those are the only two things we know in regards to the Mount of Olives directly mentioned in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this is the first time we see it. Now, are you with me so far? So follow me on this then. Go back to our text. It starts with this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, or drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage. Okay, raise your hand if you're Bethphage. Okay, beautiful. Now, it's good. You've passed the test. At the Mount of Olives, which we would assume. If Jesus is at the Bethphage, where is he at in regards to the Mount of Olives? This is at the top of it. This is he sent two disciples. In no account of the four, and it's mentioned in all four, in no account are they named. Apparently that wasn't the issue, but Jesus seemed to know exactly who he could send for such a job. And he sent his two disciples, and he said to them, say to them, say to them saying to them, go to the village opposite you. Okay. You don't have to be entirely brilliant. What village is opposite Bethphage? Bethany, you guys, did you get that? That will be kind of important. We'll see. And this is the cool thing where the Lord gives us this place to be Sherlock a little bit. So what happens is we start to develop. We go, oh, I get it. 
Jesus went to a town, and it happens to be the town. Oh, here we go with those like weird squeaky noises, right? Let me do this. Ooh. Follow me on this. It's, the, again, Bethany, the place of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, the place of Simon the leper. But don't forget where he goes. He sends two guys and he sends them to Bethany. He says, go to the village opposite of you and you're going to find a colt. You're going to find a donkey. And that donkey is going to be tied up. Donkey is going to be fruitful. It's going to have a child with it. And I want you to get them. And as I want you to get them, if someone, anyone says anything to you, just tell them, oh, the Lord needs them. So which one of you is ready to go do that? Which one of you is ready to go donkey jacking, donkey nicking? Now, we're aware of the fact, according to Exodus 22, that the price for stealing wasn't like in the Wild West, where if you were rustling an animal, they just drag you from the back of another one until you died. <clears throat> according to the scriptures, it tells you that if you were caught stealing, you had to replace four times the amount you stole. Which, by the way, that means if someone stole from you and they got caught, probably the best day that happened to you. Now, the, the, with that in mind, understand there's a whole lot to play into this. And I want to develop this so that when we read through the text, we get a lot more out of it. That's the hope here. But Jesus is sending them. And think about the faith it would take for these two guys. He doesn't say, according to any of the texts, you're going to stop at the house of so-and-so. So he's like, you're going to walk into this town and you're going to find a donkey tied up. That's it. So what am I just looking for a donkey? So imagine how that would play out today. Jesus is sending you. He's like, okay, here's the deal. No, a donkey's a really, really big deal in the Middle East to this day. We'll talk about that in a moment. But imagine Jesus goes, okay, here's the deal. You're going to go and I'm going to send you from here and I'm going to send you up into Belsize Park. And as I send you into Belsize Park, you're going to go and you're going to find, give me just a, a, a BMW. You're going to find a BMW convertible of which no one's ever really ridden before. And that BMW is going to have the keys in the ignition because you're not going to do anything to damage it. But I want you to go and get it. And as you're hopping in the car, if anyone says anything to you, now which one of you would be praying on the way, oh, please don't let anyone encounter me? Just tell them, yeah, the Lord needs it. Good, good. And they'll, they're just, they'll go, oh, yeah, oh, of course. Well, so they can take my Beamer. Now, now consider the fact that the, the, the amount of faith that these two guys had to demonstrate to do this, but also that Jesus knew exactly where this thing was. He knew where to get this. He knew where his resources were, and he knew how to get them. And they go. Mark and Luke both tell us, by the way, they actually were encountered. Somebody did say, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? And they're like, uh, you say it. No, you say it. You say it. The Lord has need of it. And they're like, oh, okay. And you're like, what? Now, which one of us wouldn't be freaking out and then amazed at that experience? So hear me on this. The donkeys to this day are called the engineers of the Middle East. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Now, people call, consider donkeys stubborn, but there's a reason for it other than the fact that they do seem to have a very strong will. They're actually the most brilliant to find a path of any of the animals that people ride that I'm aware of. As a matter of fact, one of the dangers is uh, riding a horse in places where there are sheer cliffs. You're probably familiar with the fact that, at least in places like the Grand Canyon, you can only ride a donkey, you can't ride a, a horse. Because horses actually won't look before they leap. Donkeys are going to look and go, I'm not going there. But when you want to go and find a road, they are the ones who actually carve your roads. What people would do is they would actually take a donkey and they would fill it with a load. 
that load would then create a certain width. By the way, that was an important thing here in England you're probably familiar with as well. Many of the streets are only that wide. That's why cars have to do that dance, you know, where we park for the next guy to go by. And then we, and if a bus comes, we just get out and walk. But, but, you know, it's like the idea of it is we went and then we watched that donkey and we marked the donkey. We actually went with twigs and such and we marked the donkey because the route they took would be the safest route down a hill, the safest route up a hill. They were the most sure-foot animals in regards to that. So they were called the engineers of the Middle East. From a perspective of building, from a pers- when, when you looked at a donkey, you knew progress was happening. The same way that you might see scaffolding coming up, chances are there's something going on that involves construction. Well, when you saw a donkey and you saw a donkey with a load, it's a pretty good possibility what that donkey was doing was setting a, setting a ring. And you knew if I got behind that donkey, I was going to follow the right road. It was the right path, which was a cool thing to consider. But there's a whole lot more to that, of course, because he pulls up the issue of Zechariah. Now, many of you may be familiar with the term a triumphal entry or the triumph of Jesus. Now, a triumph is a parade and triumphs are normally done on both sides of a battle. Traditionally, what a triumph is, is a pep rally. So beforehand, what you want to do is the king and those that are going to battle are brought before the people in a big parade and everybody cheers and screams and yells and gives them a bit of a patriotic spirit, but gives them a reason to fight. And the idea is if you really felt like everybody thought you were a hero, you were ready to go into battle. And, and kings knew this. So, but when they did that, you had to go and look large and in charge. So what you rode was the tallest, strongest steed you could get your hands on, traditionally in Arabian, because they could be even as tall as eight feet. That's a big horse. I mean, that means you could walk under it and it wouldn't even know you were there. No. So, I mean, you consider the fact there's this gigantic thing that you're on top of. People look at that and they have to look up and they think, okay, that guy's going to lead us in the battle. There's the idea. So on the first side, prior to a battle, and we have several times in Scripture, by the way, when we actually look at the whole story of Esther, the battles, the the big parties that were being thrown at the beginning, in essence, were kind of those. Because he was actually going to go to battle. Uh, And that's another story for another day. But but he was going to battle against the king that, by the way, he really needed an awful lot of moral support to do. And and he would wind up losing anyways. But uh, I just spoiled it. You know, uh, follow me on this, though. So you you have this situation. We have this horse and you have all your men and you're trying to look big and mighty. Right? And everyone's like, yep, that's it. We're going to win this one. And then on the other side of it, once the battle was conquered then you would come back and you would actually have a very, very important one. And this, of course, was the considered that this was actually the literal triumph because what would happen is you literally triumphed. And what would happen is you would take the, the commander of the other army and you wouldn't kill him yet or the king of the other side and you wouldn't kill him yet. You would drag him behind a chariot. Now, you wouldn't drag him like he would like the Wild West. You'd chain him and he'd have to walk behind the chariot. And all of the army then that was once your enemy was then also taken captive. And they were paraded down the streets. And the idea was is that at the, in, the middle of that, uh, in the middle of that triumph was the commanding officer of your army showing that he has completely conquered this. And you were to stand and watch this. And how, why wouldn't you scream your head off? Because what you were saying is, yeah, you guys were, you know, you were beating us up and you were the bully at school. And, uh, and now look at you. You're completely defeated. And it tells us, by the way, in the book of Colossians, that Jesus triumphed over the handwriting of requirements, having nailed it to the cross. The cross in that illustration was the chariot for which the very things that stood against us were nailed to, for which then were dragged before us to see, made a public spectacle of them, we read, triumphing over them in the cross. And Jesus shows us that triumph. But in both cases, you want to see somebody large and in charge and ready for battle. So you ride your biggest strongest steed that we know 
But Jesus isn't going that way. The problem is, every person that appears to be surrounding Jesus has that mind. But it's not Jesus' mind. See, they want deliverance, but they just don't want deliverance from what Jesus wants to deliver them from. They're so consumed in the moment and in the hardship of this very moment that they can't see past it enough to realize that there's a much greater enemy than Rome for them. And there's a much greater enemy for you than an addiction. And that doesn't mean it's not a bad thing. Rome was horrible to the Jewish people. In the same way that an addiction is horrible to you. Your circumstances around you, horrible, no doubt, if you really are going and suffering through great times. The tribulations and the trials that you will face in this life, I, oh, granted, I will save less than Paul, which he calls light, according to his own. He still sees in all of that that the challenges that face him are all temporary because he calls them the light and temporary afflictions. But Rome has been and gone. I mean, Rome still exists as a place to go and get a postcard and it makes, there's some lovely gelato there. There's some wonderful food. But one thing there isn't there is an empire that still dominates the entire Western world. And though they may have lasted a thousand years, which I always think is kind of funny because people think it's crazy that Jesus could rule for a thousand years, but they didn't have a problem with Rome doing it. Well, you know, anyways, that's a side note. The important point in this is that no matter what the thing was that was dominating people, the tyrant, it will always only be temporary. Even if it's the entirety of your life, it's still temporary. And the challenges that beset you, we could cry out to God and the only, we would be willing to sell anything, give anything, trade anything for, to get away from the moment. But he's so much more about the long haul. And he recognizes that anyone who sins is a slave to sin and that every one of us still sit under the tyranny of sin without Jesus' intervention. Now there's another particular situation that's a little less of a parade but where a king actually goes because he starts declaring peace. Now, he doesn't have a parade beforehand because, to be honest, it's normally not a very popular thing. But we, would, we might say it this way, as a prisoner swap or a ransom. When a king goes because someone that's important to him, dear to him, has actually been held captive by an army that's not his own. And he can go there and dominate it. But on the other side of it, if that person duly owes, they still duly owe. And he can go and actually pay their bill. He can go and ransom them. And in which case, he doesn't write his steed anymore because he has to come lowly. He has to come with the willingness to not say, I'm just come to destroy you at this moment. I've come to redeem. The issue isn't you. The issue is them. And a king rides on a donkey to do that. It's interesting because throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us that he is our elasmus is the Greek word. The word is literally ransom payment. We read it as propitiation. And yet in that, we fail to see often that what Jesus had to do was submit himself. Now, he could have just destroyed the enemy. He could have just, why doesn't God just blow up the enemy? Because we still owe God because of our guilt. There's the problem. And because of an, his infinite love for us, he was going to pay our bill anyway. And then destroy the enemy. So in doing so, you don't owe. And he can't claim. So he goes on a donkey. But as he goes on a donkey, the people start to shout out. 
So we get the idea of the donkey. But by the way, interesting. So this, this donkey that would represent progress also represents peace. But this donkey was tied up and was kept. But the moment the Lord made claim to it, it was to be released and brought to Jesus. Oh, that's my king. And so Jesus then takes the donkey. As it's set free, of course, we read in verse 3, if anyone says anything, tell them the Lord has need of it. And apparently that was all that was needed. And this was done that it might be fulfilled what Zechariah spoke in Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah, by the way, as a reference, and we're bringing this around, believe it or not. Zechariah was one of the two prophets called during the restoration. Israel had been taken captive 586 B.C. by the Babylonian Empire. And after 70 years of captivity, would go back. As they started to go back, they went back in three returns, three, if you will, three expeditions, very much like they were taken in three exploits. Uh, the first of them was to go back and return and rebuild the temple. Important to note that in the middle of that, they were receiving such harassment for rebuilding the temple that everyone around them clearly declared war on them. For which then God sends Zechariah with the purpose of saying, get up, get to work, trust God, get the temple right again. Because if you're going to be restored, it's a perfect study on maybe you've ever fallen away from God for a while and you've done your own stupid thing and now you want to come back. The first thing that needs to get right is the temple. Your walk with God, your intimacy with him, back to the sacrifice. And from there, the second thing that will be restored is fellowship. Because Ezra will come back with the second group. Zerubbabel comes with the first. Ezra comes back with the second to restore the people. And then third will come Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And understand, this is the way it will look when you actually find yourself returned to the Lord. It will go back to the cross first. That's your, that's your altar. And then it will restore fellowship. And as he restores fellowship, ultimately he'll start building walls. Walls that you know keep out what is dangerous to you. You'll get convictions that you realize for a good purpose. Well, having said that, Zechariah comes with the purpose of regaining the people's challenge and vim and vigor to go and rebuild the temple, to go right to the core again, because the people were really weighing off of this. And in the midst of this, he tells you, your king is coming to bring you peace. That's our text. So the disciples did it. They took the colt. They laid it, uh, their clothes on him, set him, and then a great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Verse 8. Others cut down branches of trees, spread them on the road. And the multitudes went before them and cried out, saying, this thing is, most people don't even know what it means. Hosanna. Hoshana. It is important to note that when Jesus first appeared on the scene, he had a forerunner. We know him as John the Baptist. Jesus is relative. When John the Baptist came, proclaiming, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 4, which, by the way, was 700 years before Jesus. And he tells them that every valley is to be filled Every mountain's to be leveled. Every rough place made smooth. Because the king is coming and you want to make sure that the road is as smooth as possible. That he has the easiest straight shot to you. It's the same message, by the way, I would want to bring to you and to me today. God really wants a straight shot into your heart. And we can dig our holes those things that we think are deficits in our life, the valleys of places we look back with regret, and we can actually tell God that it's going to be hard for him to get over those. And the hills of our pride, God says those need to be leveled because he really wants a straight shot to your heart and mine. 
And in this particular moment, Jesus is descending, declaring peace. And the people are shouting. And it's a really weird, bittersweet moment because Luke tells us at this moment that Jesus starts to cry. And the word that's used, by the way, doesn't speak about one of those like, you know, commercials where the single tear streams down the face in some form of profound or sublime statement. But rather, the word means to convulse. Jesus is weeping. He is not just crying like he's just taken over. He is out of control, sobbing. And that would be a very strange thing while we're all trying to make him king. When Jesus fed the 5,000, we read that the, the multitude wanted to make him king and Jesus had to escape so they wouldn't. Well, now they think they have their chance. And here's the saddest part. They're crying out, as we sang, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not the issue. This is all taken from Psalm 118. The issue is that they were crying out, Hoshana. And we're familiar with the word, many of you, with the word Hoshea. Hoshea, like as in Yehoshua, means save or savior. Ana or na means now or I pray, I beg you. It is a plead. It takes the term and makes it commanding with a sense of urgency. What they are crying is, I beg you, save now. That's what Hosanna means. Hosanna. And imagine, here is Jesus who has come to save on a donkey because he's come to make peace. And he's come to save us, not just from Rome. And somewhere down the line, we get this crazy idea that God owes us a comfortable life with no trials. But we're probably aware of the fact that if Jesus' redemption was the required route for him was suffering, that suffering becomes fundamental and essential for the person God wants to make each of us. But at this moment, Jesus isn't weeping and convulsing because people are asking him to save. He's weeping and convulsing because they're asking him to save from something they want that is so small compared to what he wants. Which tells me just because somebody cries out for God to save them doesn't mean they really want Jesus as their Lord. They just want him because they think they got their girlfriend pregnant or they think that they've got some brushing with the law or they may have gotten a disease from that encounter or whatever the thing is. And they're like, God, as long as, as, long as you get me out of this and you're making deals, but please hear me, beloved. The only thing that drives God is a relationship with you. Every decision he makes, everything he does is about your relationship with him. And if the only time you really cling to him with all of your love and heart and desperation is in a trial, it is amazing he ever pulls you out of them. Because really what he wants is you and me. And what he really wants from these people is them. But they really want God to serve him on an issue where they still retain their lordship or what they think is the lordship of their lives. So think about the statement, Hosanna in the highest. God save, please, now in the highest, to the utmost. That's what they're saying. To the greatest degree. In other words, decimate Rome. Decimate Rome. So we never have to deal with this again. The problem is, if Jesus had done that, he'd never see him again. And the same people who are crying this out are the same people who will be crying out in one way or another because we read this as a great multitude. They'll be crying, crucify him shortly after. And this is Sunday here. By Friday, they will be crying, crucify him. And he knows it. 
But consider this. Up in Bethany, Jesus had gone to the tomb of a friend who had been dead for four days. The stone was rolled away. The crowd was there wailing. They were wailing. And Jesus cried. And as Jesus cried, he called out the dead. And the dead came. And everyone was transformed. There was weeping. It's the only time, two times we read Jesus weeping. And there's here. Where Jesus has come, the stones of the gate, if you will, have been rolled away. And Jesus has come to call out the dead of Jerusalem. But they won't come. And because they won't come, he is sobbing. Interesting, 38 years after this, by the way, Titus and his men will surround, of the Roman Empire, will surround Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, by the way, they will flee to the temple because somehow they're convinced that the, after all, since Herod helped really build uh, an addition on it, he took something roughly 4,400 square feet and made it 1.2 million square feet. That's a big remodel. They figured, well, they're certainly not going to destroy it. I mean, Rome helped build this. And they go into the temple and one drunken soldier throws a firebrand into the temple itself, which, by the way, was stone, but then wood and wood covered in gold and the wood catches fire the gold melts and goes through the rocks the rock by the way limestone is a very wet stone and it starts to evaporate and as it does it crumbles to dust and the soldiers go and it will rage to tear the whole thing apart to get the liquid gold the very thing jesus would promise but have you ever seen anyone that you just know is destroying their life and you just know unless something radical happened, they're just going to make choices that kill them? And you can beg them and you cry out to them and they look at you and they can agree with you idealistically, but they're not going to change. Could you imagine how horrible it would be to see their demise and still cry to them and still want them? See, the people never came out because they were interested more and what their agenda was for God than his will for their lives. And please hear me, because we can do the same. The reason they never came out of their graves was because they were still trying to make the rules and set the boundaries that started, by the way, back in Bethridge. Are we doing that? I mean, this is a day where we belly up to the table of God, where we go then and we have communion and understand we're told, by the way, to come somberly, soberly, to genuinely and honestly be introspective, to take a look at ourselves and say, God, if I'm going to declare you as the Lord and Savior of my life, not just Savior, but Lord, is there anything in my life that really is in enmity with that? Am I really fighting you in this? Because if I am, well, that needs to end before I go to the table. And I'm not telling you don't go to the table. What I'm telling you is go to the table with a clear conscience. Give God the power to take it. So the people are crying out. Son of David, of course, from the promise in Second Samuel 8, that David, from David's own loins would come the greatest king that would be. The Psalms say are from everlasting to everlasting with an everlasting throne. And Jesus steps in to fill that role. What's interesting is in verse 10, it tells us that the city of Jerusalem, not everyone knew who he was. You'd think by this point everyone did. Well, the leadership sure did. And they're like, who is this? Notice they call him a prophet, God's spokesperson, but not a savior and not Lord. Hear me as we bring this around. And it is important to note this. If you have your Bibles or your apps, do this for a moment. And our countertext in this, go to Mark 11. We'll read, by the way, in Luke, the encounter where 
the Pharisees call out to Jesus and tell him to shut his disciples up. And Jesus, of course, says if they were to remain silent, then the rocks would cry out. But in Mark 11, are you there? Oh, beautiful. In Mark 11, <clears throat> it tells us this. Verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 11. Now, when they drew near, near to Jerusalem, or near Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, remember that's where you guys are, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go to the village opposite you. Now, we know he sent them from Bethphage, so he sent them to Bethany to get the donkeys. We're all in that now. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied. No one sat on it. Loose it. Bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and loosed it. But some who, uh, of those who stood there said to him, what are you doing? Why are you loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, and so they let him go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus. Now, where did they pull the colt from? What city? What town? Bethany. Did you guys get that? Okay, follow me on this. It says then, verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed out cried out, saying, Hoshana, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and so when he looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, now, Jesus, this is going to be important because what we're going to find is Jesus has come to clean house. He's come to die. He's come to save. But there is this thing as we delve into it next week about Jesus actually cleaning the temple. Most of us are familiar with the story. We tend to think Jesus sort of turned into the Hulk where he turned green, his shirt ripped open or whatever, his tunic ripped open, and he just started freaking out. And people use that as some kind of justification for rage. But what we find is it's a very calculated event because Jesus went into the temple looked around, and left. The next day he will come in and clean the temple, which tells us Jesus had a whole night to sleep on it and seek the Father before he did anything. It was an act of obedience, not an act of losing his temper. But let me ask you, why did Jesus go back to Bethany? Well, he was going to spend the night there. But what else did he, do you think he did in Bethany? Yes, I think he returned the donkeys. Don't you think it's cool that Jesus borrowed them? It wasn't like someone said, already oh, has need of it, and that was the end of it. He went back to Bethany, and I have this feeling that Jesus took the donkeys back. And there's something kind of brilliant about this, because you realize when God takes something, he often borrows it, but he never brings it back the same way. He's the only one who can borrow something and bring it back better. I mean, Jesus, if you think about it, he borrowed a kid's lunch, and he fed 5,000 people with it. Do you think that kid will ever look at that basket the same? He borrowed a guy's boat, and he made it a stage for the greatest teaching that has ever been on the planet. Do you think they'll ever look at that boat the same? He borrowed here a donkey. Do you think they'll ever look at that colt? Do you think at that point they'll say, oh, no, no, don't sit on that colt. Jesus sat on that colt. He'll borrow a grave. He won't need it forever. Do you think anyone will look at that grave the same? And here's the cool thing. Look at It started with this. There are things you need to give God you're not going to get back. To be honest, because the Lord has no need of them. 
And there are things the Lord has need of. But if you give those to the Lord, they'll come back better. So when the Lord says, hey, I have need of that. Let me have it. Watch what he does with it. And that might be, I have need of this time. I have need of this season, and I'm going to take you far away. I have need of this season, and I'm going to bring you through some things you never thought you could live through. I need your heart. I have use of it. I have your talents. I have use of it. Your skill, I have use of it. Give it to me. Now, I'm not speaking for me. I'm talking about the Lord here. What happens if you gave it to him? That little bit may feed 5,000. That fishing boat may become the greatest stage Jesus ever taught on. Your workplace. Isn't that what that was? No matter what it is, if the Lord has use of it, he's going to make it better. As we bring this to close, I will say this really quickly. Forgive me for being a bit technical. Some of you are familiar with the fact that there was a... Um, a Scotland Yard agent, an overseer, a commander of Scotland Yard back in the 1800s. His name, by the way, for what it's worth, is Sir Robert Anderson. And he actually took to account the text in Daniel 9 that says, from the day of the going to rebuild the temple to the coming of Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the prince, will be 69 sevens. And he just simply did the math. He took seven-year periods. He multiplied it by 69 he took into account the Julian calendar and the days that they used to account to make sure that the moon lines up. And he came, of course, to the day 173,880 days. Of the 173,880 days, all he had to do then was find out when the command was given. The command was given, by the way, on March 14, 445 B.C. That's where he went with this. So March 14, 445 B.C., he went and he added then 173,880 days, which took him exactly to a week before or the day before, in this case, a week before Passover, the Sunday before, and that would be April 6th, 3280. That's actually what solidified and completely convinced him that this Jesus was exactly who he said he would be. Because if he came on any other day, Daniel's prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled. Now, you can't mess around with math. It was exactly that simple. And here's my point. God knew exactly who he could use to send for a crazy task. He knew exactly who he needed to provide. He knew exactly what day to do this on. He had it all completely lined up and nobody else seemed to know it but him. But they all, I don't know who did the math to follow. Some people were just there because all they were really wanting was for Jesus to make their life more comfortable. And that's not my plan for you or for me. He never promised a comfortable life, but he did promise to be your comfort in it. But the only way the world out there that doesn't know Jesus is going to know he's real is when storms hit both houses and ours still stands. And you may not like the storms, but there are people watching your house expecting it to fall. Some people are even trying to make it fall that don't know the Lord. And when it doesn't, they're going to have to stand before God with that. My heart is that they'll cry out to him first. So on this day, this 4th of September 2016 the Lord has come to change you to be more than just Savior but to be Lord will you say yes to him 
Or will you still tell them you've got some things you really want to work out first? And somehow I know this. If God would just kill those people that are making your life miserable, you'll be okay with them. But if he's not going to calm the storm, I guarantee you, if you let him, he'll calm the child in it. Because he knows what's more important to use you to bring others to him. And we can kick and scream all we want. But if he's using you, there's an honor there. And I want to pray for you and me. I want to pray today for us as a family that today we would let him bring peace and not just remove discord. Will you pray with me? Lord, on this day that we prepare for communion, On this day, Lord, we cry out to you to save. To save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our guilt, because we stand before you guilty, regardless of Rome. Regardless of the nasty neighbor or the rotten people or the raw deal we feel we're getting or the people we feel have gathered together to conspire. In the end of it all, Lord, if all of them were wiped out, we still would stand guilty before you without your intervention. And we've cried out that we ask and we want your heart. But to want your heart, we recognize if we're going to follow your example, nobody was more mistreated than you. And yet you received it, handed it over to the one who judges righteously. Because we all like sheep have gone astray each to our own way. And upon you was laid the iniquity of us all. And we pray God save now. But we recognize if you're going to be Savior, then you have to be Lord. We cannot make demands, Lord, to make our life just more pleasant. And in doing so, somehow claim the regality that is rightfully yours. So please, today, we pray, Lord, that you would take your rightful throne. And I thank you, Lord, that you could have made your home in Bethphage, but you actually went to the place of the sick to the poor, and made your home there among them. I have a feeling not many of them were sick after that. And I just pray, Lord, whatever it is that you would have need of, that we would not be so foolish as to say, no, I have a better need of it than you. Even if what that is simply is our life or our heart. And I recognize, God, today, how different this text would be if your disciples were sent and they said the Lord have need of it and the people were like but that's my donkey get away and how sad the story would be but you knew who would say yes and prayerfully you can look into our hearts and see that yes upon us right now and I pray Lord that as we take time now to have communion that it would be sweet and right But I also pray right now, if there be any who have yet to say yes to you. Jesus, as you died on a cross to pay for all of our sins, so the debt could be paid and we could be ransomed, we have volunteered, we have put ourselves in a place of great debt, a debt we cannot pay. And you have sent your Son, Father, to pay that price on the cross for us. And then just like Scripture promised, he was buried and rose again on the third day. And that 
is what we make claim to when we make the choice today to say yes. To say yes to that gift. Proclaiming you, Jesus, is more than Savior, but as Lord. Please have your way today. Please. And as we take a moment to sing and to prepare, remind us that we recognize there's a choice to say yes to you at the beginning, but also there's a choice to continue to walk with you in a way where we really trust you, even with these challenging times. So today, please, Lord, please. We want to give you everything. And if you have no need of it, remove it. If you have use for it, use it to your glory to benefit others. Because you're the Lord, you know what's best. Please. In Jesus' name. Amen.